An old woman is walking down a busy sidewalk in the city when she is firmly bumped aside as a man runs past her. <gasps> the man stole her purse. Fortunately, a police officer heard the cries of the old woman and chases the man through alleyways, over fences, through the hot, frantic kitchen of a restaurant until he turns the corner and it's a dead end. The thief is trapped. The policeman aims his gun and commands, Don't move. Here's the question. Can the criminal really stop moving? Let's talk about it. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Schwinghammer, and I'm the host of the Expand Your Ability podcast. I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner, and this show dives into how exploring movement can help us understand ourselves and create new choices. Moshe Feldenkrais invented his method as a way to, one, improve functional ability through a process that helps us become aware of our invisible habits, two, reduce how compulsive these habits are, and three, create new, more delightful habits. So a big question that he addresses in his book, Awareness Through Movement, is why movement? Why use movement as the basis for self-improvement? Couldn't we just read books and listen to podcasts? <clears throat> Thank you for listening, by the way. <laughs> Can't we just get ideas and life will be better? Y yes, that will get you part of the way. The other part of the way is that we need to stop the invisible habits that interfere with what we want to do. The thing about habits is that they are multi-layered and interconnected across our thinking, our feeling, our sensing, and our moving. If you shift movement habits, you can shift your thinking and feeling habits too. In his book, Feldenkrais offers nine reasons for why movement. I will look at reason number five today. Don't worry, you can listen to these episodes in any order. If you want to listen to the others, they are episodes 5, 9, 13, and 18. Let's get going. I'll read the brief section in full, and then break it down sentence by sentence. Reason number 5. All muscular activity is movement. Every action originates in muscular activity. Seeing, talking, and even hearing require muscular action. In hearing, the muscle regulates the tension of the eardrum in accordance with the loudness of the sound perceived. Not only are mechanical coordination and temporal and spatial accuracy important in every movement, its intensity is also important. Permanent relaxation of muscles causes action to be slow and feeble, and permanent excessive tension causes jerky and angular movements. Both makes states of mind apparent and linked with the motives of the actions. Thus, in mental patients, nervous persons, and those with an unstable self-image, it is possible to discern, discern disturbances in the muscular tonus in accordance with that, that deficiency. At the same time, other attributes of action, such as rhythm and adjustment in time and space, may be more satisfactory. It is possible to discern trouble in the regulation of intensity in movements and in the facial expressions of a person on the street, even for an unskilled observer, 
who does not know exactly what is wrong. Okay, that's quite the section. There's a lot going on here. So, let's break it down bit by bit. Oh, by the way, I'll have this posted in the show notes, this excerpt from the book, in case that helps you to be able to read it visually, because there is a lot here. All right, he starts with, All muscular activity is movement. This is the central idea. I think he's offering clarity on how to define movement. I mentioned thinking, feeling, sensing, moving before. And so of these four, how do we define moving, movement? I know, I know, it's pretty obvious. Moving is moving, am I right? I see a person walking, they're moving. Someone is talking, they are moving. I know, I know, it seems like case closed. We know what moving is. But my dear listener, I have a few questions for you. If a person is lying down, really still, are they still moving? If a person is quietly sitting at a concert, listening to music, are they still moving? After a long day of work, sitting in a chair, and they get up and stretch and then complain, I haven't moved all day. Really? Do they not move all day? A street performer who is painted to look like a statue, and literally is frozen like a statue, in a way that unsuspecting people walking by have no idea that's a real human? until they get the jump scare? (laughs) Is that human statue really not moving? Hmm. Let's go to the next line, back to the book. Every action originates in muscular activity. Seeing, talking, and even hearing require muscular action. In hearing, uh, the muscle regulates the tension of the eardrum in accordance with the loudness of the sound perceived. Okay. A person who is so completely still, still requires their heart to pump their blood, for their lungs to breathe, for their eye muscles to focus their eyes, for, th- for the muscles in their ear to take in, inf- take in sound appropriately. A person standing or sitting still are still negotiating a relationship with gravity that pulls them to the floor. You'd fall without some sort of ongoing muscular activity. I think it's neat that he brings in hearing, which does seem so passive, but there's a muscular act there too. So you can't live without moving. Your muscles are engaged in some way, even if you're really, really still. That engagement, that activation of your musculature is moving. All right, back to the book. He says, Not only are mechanical coordination and temporal and spatial accuracy important in every movement, its intensity is also important. Permanent relaxation of muscles causes actions to be slow and feeble, and permanent excessive tension causes jerky and angular movements. Both make states of mind apparent and linked with the motive of the actions. I think what he's aiming at here is what is central to the Feldenkrais method. What is the appropriate tone, the appropriate muscular tone for an activity? What is not excessive and what is not feeble? 
He doesn't place a high value on being relaxed for its own sake, and it's not skillful to be excessively toned. Another thing to consider is that we're not talking about one muscle, we're talking about the whole self. What is the appropriate tone for the action throughout the entire body, where no place is working harder than any other place? The awareness through movement lessons he designed help help a person to find this tone more globally. And that last part he says about how the person moves makes states of mind apparent and linked with the motive of the actions. Well, whether a person is excessively relaxed or tonified, that is reflective of that person's state of mind. Right? That's how they are thinking right here manifested in their body. Let's see where he goes from here. Thus, in mental patients, nervous persons, and those with an unstable self-image, it is possible to discern disturbances in the muscular tonus in accordance with the, the deficiency. At the same time, other attributes of action, such as rhythm and adjustment in time and space, may be more satisfactory. I'm going to bring in the next sentence because it's so related. He says, It is possible to discern trouble in the regulation of intensity in movements and in the facial expression of a person on the street, even for the unskilled observer who does not know exactly what is wrong. Okay, I think Feldenkrais is pointing to a general situation to prove the point. You can observe in others by their movement, by the expression on their face, which is muscular activity too what they are thinking, or possibly just the case that maybe something is off with the person, in the case of a person on the street. I thought I'd describe some people I've met and describe how they move, and maybe that would reflect something about how they think. I'm curious if it'll come through. So here are some descriptions of people I've met. Now, none of them were mental patients, (laughs) But I think they all have, to some degree, some sense of insecurity or nervousness. So, I know someone who is older, who stands tall with his chest forward. He has an air of being a little standoffish. His head is a bit back. His eyes are always scanning the environment. He occasionally makes eye contact, but often just goes back to looking elsewhere. Like an astute businessman, he punctuates his talking points with hand gestures. He speaks so that you know something, that you hear him, but doesn't necessarily hear what you have to say. I know a woman who was quite sick for some time with a mysterious illness. She would shift between these different states. Sometimes she would be practically limp and just wanted to lie down for hours, almost as if in a depressive funk. Sometimes she could function and make food and go to work. Sometimes her eyes were almost literally darkened, as if they were lifeless. The muscles around her lips could not really draw up into a smile. It was as if the corners of her lips and the corners of her eyes were drawn downwards. Sometimes she would be very tense, her eyes narrowed, and her lips pursed. She, she would be on edge. She could be quick to anger when she was like this, 
and re react so abruptly, throwing her arms up and running out of the room. I know a man who had a profoundly unstable self-image. He had to be hyper-vigilant to his work environment at all times. If something got too close or surprised him, he would jump. Like, he had to really map out the room around him, and if someone moved some cart without him knowing, it could make him jump. He had to know where everything was. He often paced around at a rapid rate, and to soothe himself, he would go out for a smoke. He would continually work on realigning his skeleton into a stacked position. When there was something important to finish really quickly, some, some work urgency, he would scamper with his chest forward, his back extended, and he would walk with short, narrow strides. He moved with five times the urgency that the than, than the situation even asked for. There's something about the way these people move that reflects their state of mind. As a Feldenkrais teacher, I'm observing students in their, quote, mechanical coordination, their temporal and spatial accuracy, as well as the intensity of their movements. Not to judge them as doing something good or bad, but to use that as a starting point to offer them alternatives or prompts for their awareness. The way they activate their musculature is reflective of their nervous system, which means it's reflective of how they think and how they feel. Some students move quite quickly, and some move angularly. Some move with this quiet precision. Some move sort of lax. Some move as if they're being watched as if they're doing it right. Some move with play and fun. For the average person, their expression can give us a lot of information. You can see the effort that some students exert by how they scrunch up their face. Do they stop breathing? Again, this isn't about judging them. My goal is to offer people opportunities to become aware of what they do. In doing so, they make the invisible habits visible, or the imperceivable habits perceivable, and what is visible and perceivable can become changeable. It's a real joy when you realize, oh, ah, this is a thing I'm doing, and I don't have to do it. It's so cool. It's so cool. So the goal isn't to move more quickly or move slowly but to be in the practice of finding appropriate amount of muscular effort, the appropriate amount of tonus for the given situation. And that's globally too, across your body. And this comes out in lessons, like the one I taught recently on rolling from the back to sitting while one hand holds the opposite foot. For this action to occur, the students have to be tonified enough. They have to be tonified appropriately. They can't be too relaxed in some places or effort too much in some places. I have found that my own rigid tension 
this sort of rigid use of myself in places interfere with the movement for myself. And so I explore what is it that I'm doing. And in that exploration, I change how I'm tonified, and that changes how I think, and I can discover and become aware when I think this way. I'm rigid in this way, physically, in my body. All right. To recap this episode, to be alive means you are moving all the time. Your movement, how you move, is indicative of your nervous system, of your state of mind. Your movements are your thinking and feeling, your sensing, all made manifest in the world. We can look to movement as a way to understand how a person is internally, to some degree. It might not be definitive, so we should observe for a while, or ask them how they feel or what they're thinking about to get more information. You can become a student of your own movement, and by doing so, you can gradually adjust your way of thinking and feeling and how you are in different situations. I hope this podcast was helpful. I invite you to talk about these ideas you hear here with a friend. What feels true to either of you? What do you have objections to? Talking about and relating to the ideas we are learning about helps us learn further. Here's something. When people find out that the Feldenkrais method is about movement, they go, oh, well, I exercise already, I'm good. I do this uh, workout thing, I'm good. Don't make that mistake. You haven't moved like this before. This is training for your brain more than it's training for your muscles. I invite you to check out my free guide called The Nine Surprising Benefits of the Feldenkrais Method. I wrote it to help people understand the curious long-term benefits of the method. It's in the show notes. The question I would like to leave with you today is, in what ways does your movement reflect your personality? Thank you for your attention.